Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. If you're new to the valley or just new to Rockfish, what we like to do here is work through books of the Bible and unpack what God has said to us there. Try to get a sense of what it means for our own lives and in our own times. Mark, to this point in his gospel, has made his purpose for writing very clear to us. And he believes and writes to the end of persuading us that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Last week, we saw Jesus halt a wild tempest, and this week, we're going to see Jesus bring peace to a man with an equally violent storm raging inside of him. Jesus will bring harmony from chaos. He will restore what has been destroyed. This morning, we're going to study together how Jesus redeems a man who lived among the tombs, and we're going to learn that he unshackles the chain and that he sets the captives free. And so our one big thing this morning, or the one uh, thing that I want you to wrap your mind around, kind of get your hands on as you think about this text and meditate on God's word this week, is that Jesus frees the enslaved. Jesus frees the enslaved. We're going to work through the text in four simple parts. A man from among the tombs, something called legion, the fear of the people, and the work of a saint. A man from among the tombs, something called legion, the fear of the people, and the work of a saint. Now, I should mention that as I worked on this sermon throughout the week, it kind of got bigger and bigger. And so I'm not sure exactly how long it's going to be, but I've built in a contingency here. So if it starts to get around the time for us to end and you're like, oh, my goodness, he's only in the first section of this. We're going to be here another hour. Fear not, friends. I have a I have a built in. We'll just end smoothly. The plane will land. So don't worry. Let's pray together before we get started. Lord Jesus. Pray that you would outfit us with compassionate hearts this morning. That you would give to us kindness and humility, meekness, and patience. That you would cause us to bear with one another in love and to be forgiving towards one another as you have forgiven us. We ask now that you would cloak us with your Holy Spirit. And that you would crush us beneath your love. We ask that you would lead us into quick repentance. And that you would cause the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts. Lord, we give you thanks for your word and for the work that you've done in us. We ask this morning that you would still the storms and the cares and the concerns and the anxieties that exist in our hearts and in our minds. We pray that you would help us to focus on you. Lord, meet us today. Teach us pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, a man from among the tombs. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 5. Remember, they're they're in the boat heading to the other side. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. So Jesus and his entourage, they've made it across the sea safely. And it's important to note where they're going because uh, Gerasene, and I think I'm pronouncing that rightly, I forgot to double check, it's a Gentile region, which means it's an unclean region. So keep that in your mind as we move on. And when Jesus, this is verse 2, had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. So Jesus steps out of the boat onto unclean land 
where he meets an unclean man with an unclean spirit. That's thrice unclean. So from a Jewish perspective, the story is filled with elements of uncleanness. Which simply means this isn't a place that a nice Jewish boy would typically be going. Yet it's where Jesus goes. Jesus goes into the bad part of town. Jesus calls sinners to himself. And he's interacting with people that most would ignore or avoid. Simple application. So too should we. As Jesus people, we should value people. We should be willing to go to the bad part of town. To the unclean places. To the marginalized. We should love people. Look at what happens too as soon as Jesus steps off of the boat. Immediately there met him a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit. It's as if Jesus has arrived for a divine date. This interaction is not coincidence but providence. It's a sovereign setup if you will. And man does Jesus have his hands full. Because this guy as we will see has issues. Verse 3 he lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. The man that Jesus meets In a graveyard is naked. That detail is from Luke's account. He attacks himself. He's crazy strong. And in the sight of most, he's just plain crazy. For some reason, when I read this text, I picture Sloth from the Goonies. I don't know if you remember the Goonies, but Sloth was chained up in the basement. And he just broke the chains away. So that's what I think of for any reason. At any rate, uh, we have a demonic Hercules of sorts. And he cannot be restrained. He's enslaved by evil. At this point, I think it might be prudent for me to say, if you believe in the God of the Bible, you must also believe in the devil and in the demons of the Bible. In his classic fable, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis provides a glimpse into the strategies of Satan's demons. You have this older, wiser demon whose name is Screwtape, and he's mentoring the young apprentice who is named Wormwood. And in the introduction to Lewis's imaginary correspondence, he writes this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. And hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. The demons love both errors. And I think Lewis is is right here. Typically, people fall into an unbalanced view of the metaphysical, whether it be by denying the existence of the spiritual altogether or by being enamored with it. The materialist ignores spiritual activity altogether while the overzealous mystic obsesses over angels and demons. Sadly, I think most Americans, and maybe even most of us, ascertain our knowledge of the occult and the demonic from unreliable sources, namely Hollywood, right? Listen to all these movie titles over the past few years. Rosemary's Baby, 1969. 
The Exorcist, 1973. Hostage to the Devil, 1976. The Omen, 1976. Remade later on. I don't know the year, but it's been remade. The Possessed, 1977. The Exorcist 2. The Heretic, 1977. The Entity, 1982. My Demon Lover, 1987. The Blair Witch Project, actually filmed right down the road from where I'm from, 1999. Bedazzled, 2000. The Little Vampire, 2000. And let's not forget wonderful TV series such as Charmed, Touched by an Angel, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. None of which articulate a biblical perspective on the spiritual realities that they portray. It's not that I don't love Buffy, but that's just not a good place for us to develop our demonology or how we think about the structures of evil. I think this section of Mark, as well as others, gives us a dose of biblical balance and sanity as we approach these matters. We see here that Jesus believes in demons and that he exercises authority over them. And so the point is that evil is not non-existent, nor is it to be deified. To state it differently, Satan and demons exist, but we need not offer sacrifices to them or consult our Ouija boards. Not that any of you own Ouija boards. Immediately, there met a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit. This demonic Hercules is enslaved by evil, and the goal of Satan and demons and structures of evil is always to steal joy, destroy peace, and to kill life. Evil promotes death, whereas Jesus promotes life and human flourishing. This man is living in a graveyard. No one can bind him, not with chain or shackles. He breaks them apart. No one can subdue him. And night and day, he's crying out and cutting himself. There is an all-out assault on this man. He's been cut off from other people socially, abused physically, and alienated from God spiritually. And though no one can bind him, He's a prisoner. He's a prisoner to this demon or demons that will later identify itself, themselves, as legion. And legion is bent on destroying the man totally. He wants to kill him. He wants to destroy him. Evil never values life or people, but only promotes death. And there's a simple principle to learn here. People of God value people. People of God value life. Christianity values human life supremely because according to the scripture, men and women are made uniquely in the image of God. In theological terminology, this is called the doctrine of the Imago Dei. Recently, it's even used as names of churches. There's Imago Dei Church, probably in like every city now. It's the cool thing to do. But it's a doctrine that's built on us being made in the image of God. People, at the end of the day, were created for God's glory. And our purpose in life is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. We'll never find ourselves happier than when we are in right relationship with God. When we are living according to His design. We were built to worship God. True satisfaction, true fullness of joy will only be found in intimate relationship with Him. 
Being made in the image of God means all people have inherent value independent of their utility or function. Being made in the image of God means that all people have inherent value independent of their utility or function. Man is unique among the creatures in that he is like God and therefore able to have communion and fellowship with God. This means we're not the same as animals or anything else in all of creation because our value is infinitely greater. We're made in the image of God. God said, let us make them. That's man in our image. This is true. Now, I know I know some of y'all love your pets and, and I love animals as much as the next guy, but pets are not people. People are more valuable. I mean, don't believe me? What what do you do with your goldfish when it dies? Right? You give him a proper burial, maybe in a shoebox, but if you're more lazy like me, you just flush the guy. Or when when you have a, a older dog that, that is ill and needs to be put down, you take him to the vet, you give him some really, really good drugs so he can take one more run through that field that he loves, and then he drifts off into the afterlife. And then maybe some of us on the way home even stop at PetSmart to get a new dog, right? You replace him down the road. But if I try either of these same strategies with, I don't know, my wife, because she's sick, it's not going to work out for me, right? I have my dog put down and the police are not knocking on my door the next day. Excuse me, sir. You need to come with us. We need to ask you some questions. Wanted. No. But if I tried this with my wife, somebody's going to be knocking on my door. Going to be wanted for murder. Because her life is infinitely more valuable than the life of my dog or my goldfish. Even though I I love Goldie and Lassie, right? Being made in the image of God means that people have infinite value, supreme value, inherent value, independent of their utility or function. Jesus identifies himself as the way, the truth, and the life. God takes life seriously. He is life. I mean, this is the theological background, after all, to the commandment, you shall not murder. God is the Lord of life. He's the creator and sustainer of life. At the end of the day, unfaithfulness to God separates us from life and brings death. And death pervades human history after the fall. Death, like life, is physical and spiritual. Physical death ends our participation in earthly life. And spiritual death is a loss of fellowship with God. And unless we follow Jesus by faith, our spiritual death will lead to eternal separation from God. The measure of sin's seriousness is revealed in its consequence. The wages of sin is death. It's a measure of the greatness of salvation also that in Christ, death is swallowed up by life. God delights in life. Death is the antithesis of life. It is evil. It is, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be destroyed. Oddly enough, Christianity's high value of human life is not shared by contemporary culture. In fact, any ideology that espouses the promotion of life is under siege today. 
Now, I'm about to go there on a a few don't-go-there topics, but before I do, I want to talk about the importance of approaching these issues with great empathy, grace, and love. Jesus was, after all, completely compassionate and entirely truthful. I mean, his ministry is filled with truth and tears. Likewise, I think our relationships need to be marked with both truth and tears. We ought sympathize and befriend sinners. After all, at the end of the day, we ourselves are sinners saved by grace. And we ought show with our lives and tell with our words about the radical saving grace that's available in Christ Jesus to all those that follow him by faith. We need to be instruments of mercy rather than arrogant, judgy jerks. Right? If we're no more than prideful and mean-spirited finger-waggers, then we haven't understood the gospel. We need to be lowly, loving hand-holders. We need to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. We ought not be self-righteous as we approach hard issues. The gospel, at the end of the day, won't allow us to be self-righteous because the cross shouts that we are so wicked that Jesus had to die for us. But at the same time, it proclaims that we're so loved that Jesus was glad to die for us. Friends, there is no sin or wrongdoing terrible enough to overcome the blood of Christ. I say that to say you are not beyond the saving hand of Jesus. He loves you. And I want you to know that there is grace enough for you this morning. All that to say, when addressing the don't go there issues, or any sin for that matter, we need to do so with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, and with truth, as those that have experienced the grace of God. Speak the truth in love, which is ironically something rarely done well by Christians. Christianity's high value of life is not shared by contemporary culture. In fact, any ideology that espouses the promotion of life is under siege. Already, abortion in our country ends millions of lives every year. And this should make us weep. Before we we go into that, though, I I want to address, I think, a huge area of neglect by the whole pro-life movement and the church. And that is the life of the mother. Let me explain a little bit. Uh, those that promote life as Christians should be more pro-life than they are. What I mean is they should be consistent and promote not only the life of the infant, but the life of the mother who is in a difficult circumstance. I think typically when we approach this issue, people dig their heels down in and get completely consumed with the life of the infant. That's usually where the church neglects the mother, or they come to the other side and completely concern themselves with the life of the mother and not the infant. And the church needs to be those that are followers of the Lord of life and that honor the image of God and loves both mother and child. I think too too, uh, too often the church speaks coldly to this issue and just dismisses the hardships that are experienced by those that would consider abortion. So I want to exhort you to be those that are truly promoters of life. Those that love the voiceless infant, but also the vulnerable mother. 
I mean, the scriptures repeatedly command us to care for the marginalized, especially vulnerable women and children. I'm just going to give you two. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And James 1, 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the father that is true religion, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We ought to have a deep concern for the mother and for the child. We correct oppression by entering into the life of the oppressed. This means that the church ought not outsource the care of young mothers or children, but take up the task themselves. We ought to take up the task. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Scott Sauls writes this, To show mercy is to lift a burden off of afflicted people and to take that burden on our own shoulders. Mercy puts itself in the shoes of those who are ashamed, alone, and scared. What if it was us or our loved ones who were faced with the realities of an unexpected pregnancy? What if we were the pregnant, unmarried woman living below the poverty line? What if we were the college student who was a victim of date rape? What if we were the woman with a husband or boyfriend demanding that we take care of it or else? What if we were the teenage girl whose parents have made it clear they will not support birth or adoption, but will only support terminations? And these are real situations. Wouldn't it be great if communities existed in our churches where any mother, married or unmarried, would feel welcomed and loved and known and know that her needs and the needs of her child would be attended to? If the church does what the church is called to do, then there will be no poor or disregarded or demeaned in our midst. In short, I would rather build a community and a dialogue and live in a society where abortion due to the love ready to be given to any child and any mother is not merely illegal, but unthinkable. We ought care for all of life. We must care for vulnerable mothers And children, we must promote the counterculture of life. We must promote the kingdom of God. As it stands, though, abortion is a virulent plague. The culture of death has so perverted the value of life that millions of women are persuaded to sacrifice their own children on the altar of what society tells them will be a better life. This rationalization of wickedness is made easier under the guise of being a harmless and ordinary choice. Yet the victims of abortion have no choice and their cries are silenced. Some some often try to appeal to science in order to argue that these victims are not persons. I think, however, the relevant scientific data confirms the argument of Scripture that unborn children are persons. From the point of conception, unborn children have a full complement of chromosomes, half from the father and half from the mother. Therefore, the unborn child is not part of his or her mother's body because he or she has their own genetic makeup, which is different from hers. So we should not treat the unborn child as we would treat hair or fingernails or even as we would treat organs like a gallbladder or a liver. 
The unborn child is separate and unique human being created in the image of God. Certainly, the unborn child is dependent upon his or her mother for life support, oxygen, nutrition, and immunity. But a person's dependence does not dissolve their personhood. A person's dependence does not dissolve their personhood. Yet the inherent value of people, independent of their utility or function, is disavowed by the culture of death. Those that promote death as preferable to life have mastered marketing and convinced many that they ought to take control of their lives and of their death. There's a movement out there called Death with Dignity. It's a very cleverly devised and named movement. It's a movement that says every American, indeed every human individual, should eventually have the right, it's always presented as a right, to end one's own life on one's own terms depending on whatever circumstances may lead an individual to believe that his or her life is not now worth living. The movement took center stage recently when 29-year-old Brittany Maynard ended her life at her home in Portland, Oregon on Saturday, November 1st, 2014. According to People Magazine's report, doctors had told her that she had only six months to live in the spring of this year after she was diagnosed with a likely stage 4 brain tumor. She made headlines around the world, says People, when she announced she intended to die under Oregon's Death with Dignity Act and that she had decided to do so by taking a fatal dose of barbiturates prescribed for her by a doctor. She had decided to take the barbiturates when her suffering became, in her estimation, too great or when she feared losing total control. Life and death issues are not easy to wade through. But we must. And we must, as Dr. Moeller writes, sympathize with Brittany Maynard, with the struggle that she faced in these end months of her life, when she faced the almost sure prospect of death, indeed a very difficult death, by this aggressive brain tumor. We need to sympathize with her family and her loved ones who surely grieve her even now and grieved in anticipation as they knew she was suffering from a terrible disease. But even though we grieve with this young woman and her struggle, and even though we understand her intention to try to avoid losing control of her life in these end stages and to avoid what was in her mind unacceptable and unbearable suffering, we also must recognize that what she was doing was taking her own destiny into her own hands. She was effectively saying, I will determine how and when I will die. Friends, the Christian worldview does not embrace death. Indeed, it's quite the opposite. It sees death as the enemy which is to be resisted. And it promises that death is eventually the enemy that is defeated in the cross and in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian worldview tells us that we are not those who hold in our hands our own destiny. We don't determine the day we are born nor Ought we try to determine the day that we die? Or for that matter, all the days and hours in between. The Bible tells us that we simply are not in control of ourselves. We are not self-defining creatures. And the hopelessness that marks the very end of Brittany Maynard's life and the hopelessness that is actually evident in her death by suicide is evidence of the fact 
that the Christian worldview actually runs not at many points, not at some point, but at every point over and against the secular worldview. Christians have to understand that even as we sympathize, even as we empathize, we cannot follow the same lines of thinking. We must think well. We must think biblically. Which means we understand that the dignity of human life is present along every point of the continuum of development in the lifespan. Simply by virtue of the fact that we live it as creatures of a benevolent and loving sovereign creator. Whose intentions for us go beyond ourselves to his glory and to those around us. Giving and taking life belongs to God, not to us. And suffering is not meaningless. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Those who suffer, this is First Peter, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We are made in God's image, the Imago Dei. Therefore, we ought to be those that promote life not a culture of death. We need to be light in a dark place. Don't buy the lie that life is only worth living if you're between the ages of 21 and 30 and in perfect circumstances and perfect health. It's a lie. Life is a gift from God. And each and every human life is precious to him. You are precious to God. And you're so valuable That the God of the universe found a way to end evil and end suffering, to end death by taking death for you. The cross shows us the magnitude and the sincerity of God's holiness, as well as the depths of his love for us. The depths of his love for life. Thus, Human life is infinitely valuable, not only because God has created people in his image, but because Jesus has purchased people by his death. Your life and your death belong to God. You're doubly owned, created in his image, purchased by his death. People of God value people. People of God value people because God values people. Jesus values life enough to cross the sea in order to heal a demon-possessed man. I mean, they're going to turn right back around after this whole episode, which is going to get interesting. He's going to throw some demons into some pigs. They're going to run off a cliff. It's crazy. But he's going to heal this guy, and they're going to turn right back around and go across the sea to where they came from. But Jesus crosses the sea to meet this man because his life is valuable to him. I mean, Jesus doesn't dismiss the demoniac saying, get this crazy, naked, unclean, worthless fool away from me. He doesn't run the other way. He doesn't wag his finger at the demoniac and say, 
dude, you are wicked. No. He saves him. He heals him. We'll fill in some of the blanks next week, but drop down to verse 15 real quick for me. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had legion. Jesus has cast him out at this point. And the man was sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. It's a picture of salvation. Jesus values the demoniac's life, and so he heals him. He goes to him. He saves him. The man's condition seemed incurable. His life seemed unfixable and hopeless. But Jesus came to him. He set him free. And he gave him true life. Thus John writes in his gospel. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Church. Jesus is not looking at your life and saying, get this crazy, wicked, unclean fool away from me. No. He's saying, come to me, all you who are weary and broken. I will give you rest. He's offering you eternal life, relationship with himself. And just as Jesus crossed the sea to save the demoniac, he left heaven And came to earth to seek and save that which was lost. That which was oppressed by sin. To seek and to save you. Jesus redeems those that live among the tombs. It's you and me. He unshackles the chained. We are chained and dead in our sins. Prisoners. Jesus sets the captive free. Jesus frees the enslaved. I urge you, step away from your chains. They have been broken. Follow the great deliverer. Follow Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, you created us for a relationship with you. We ask that you would free us from our slavery to sin and that you would call us out of death and into life. Help us to know you, to love you, to be made like you. Let our hearts cry be the same as the psalmist who writes, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Lord Jesus, be our portion this morning. Help us to love you more. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.